For the week of January 23rd, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 570, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the water pumps, which aren't working, I'm Michael Giltz. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, I'm here at the somewhere? pumps, but the but the, you, it, it can't work because the vandals took the handles. I don't know what's going on here. Oh, wait a second. I get it. That's Bob Dylan. Well, isn't it? well done. Well done. That's right. Wait, did you buy? Did you buy his? You bought his catalog. Just, just missed out. I, I oh. just underbid, just a touch. So apparently, last year, Sony, the record label, bought Bob Dylan's masters for about one hundred and fifty to two hundred million dollars. Plus, they have access to the masters for his future recordings in a deal that we've just learned about. So, in one way, that's kind of cool because it means he's matching Springsteen. You know, Dylan sold his publishing for $400 million. Springsteen sold his publishing and masters for maybe $550, $600 million, depending on which reported price you buy. Now, with Dylan selling this for a they're they're neck and neck. Dylan's like, yeah, not so fast, buddy. Uh, I'm interested here in terms of how you value the masters. And it seems to be the same way they value the publishing. You look at how much revenue it generates. And last year, Bob Dylan's masters generated about $16 million in revenue worldwide. And they said, historically, like a 10 to 12, a 10 to 14 multiple would have been what you you do. And in that case, that's why it's worth 150 to $200 million. Now they're saying bump it up a bit because we've seen these much bigger multiples. You could get 15 to 20 multiple, which would mean $300 million rather than $200 million or whatever they paid. So the, those masters are being valued more right now, whether that's a bubble or something, I don't know. But yeah, basically the same idea. Figure out how much revenue they generate and then a multiple. <laughs> That's always how you figure it out. But in this case, the multiple has been rising quite a bit in the last year. So I thought that was interesting. No no surprise at all that it would go to Sony. That's where he's been his entire career pretty much. Yeah, and of course, we now uh, know this past week uh, told us why it is that Adele wrote that song, Easy On Me, because she was saying, hey, 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 go easy on me because I got to cancel my uh, Las Vegas residency. That's right. She has to cancel her Vegas residency. But if you were going to buy someone's masters or publishing, wouldn't you want it to be Adele? <laughs> if you're going to yeah. invest in someone's future, you say, let's just give you $800 million now. <laughs> yeah, because- and, and it'll be a bargain 20 years from now. Uh, she's had a good week. She had a bad week in terms of Vegas. Last minute, they just had to say this isn't working out. It's too soon with COVID. Maybe even in two months from now, they'd be able to get away with it, but not right now. On the plus side, her song Easy On Me is on the top for a 10th week. That matches her biggest hit, Hello. And here's a cool one. We don't talk about Bruno, but we do when we need to talk about Bruno. And the song We Don't Talk About Bruno from the film Encanto has hit number two. It's number two, the second biggest song in the country, almost entirely from streaming and sales. It's not really being worked to radio at all. So that's at number two. It has a shot of going to number one if Sperling's kids will just keep playing that song in rotation. Heavy rotation, kids. Well, you know, my youngest daughter, uh, last week, my oldest daughter surprised me by singing the entire song to me mm-hmm. uh, when I kind of made a joke about her. I was like, hey, we don't talk about Bruno. And she's she like sang the whole song. <laughs> this week, uh, Your my younger youngest daughter. daughter Youngest daughter said, oh, I, I was with a friend. Uh, you know, we were watching Encanto. I said, oh, hey, 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 you know, don't tell me about Bruno. She said, 
oh, oh, uh, we, we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> I thought but you said it. She nice said it so like matter of factly, like no, 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 no we, we don't, we, we don't, we talk, don't about talk about Bruno. Bruno. I thought yeah. you were going to say she sang a Snoop Dogg song, so I'm glad no. to know she's focused on Encanto. Uh, another song from the soundtrack, Surface Pressure, is at number ten. The album is back at number one on the charts. That's exciting. It's uh, the first Disney soundtrack ever to spawn two top ten hits. No, Ooh, I did not know that. In history, has spawned two top hits. There's only been one Disney song that has gone to number one. That's a whole new world from Aladdin. Uh, you know, so that's a long, long history that Encanto is really matching. And frankly, you might want to have Lin Manuel Miranda's publishing rights, wouldn't you? Yeah, but you know what? I'm gonna let him go. <laughs> well done but we can't let go our audience uh there will not be a show next week it's all what? my fault what? it's all my fault my mom is turning I... 93 on february 1st the whole family is gathering down in the keys all my i have six i have five brothers and sisters three boys and three girls in our family i'm the youngest of six we'll all be gathering in the keys to celebrate her birthday we're driving down this week enjoying a few days in the sun celebrating her birthday uh, but I'm going to be busy with friends from high school on Sunday. Uh, my mom and all my family on Monday and Tuesday. So it just we can't record early. We can't really record on a Wednesday. That's crazy. So I'm afraid we're going to miss next week. But we will be back the week after that, which is the week that the Oscar nominations are going to be announced. So uh, it's early February, like February 7th or 8th. I don't know if I maybe we'll wait to do the show until we hear the nominations on February 8th. I don't know. But uh, normally we would record on Monday, February 7th. So it will be a, a one week gap between shows. I'm sorry about that. Although maybe what I'll try and do is get somebody who attended Sundance and do a special Sunday, just Sundance. Sure. Only. That would be Not great. A, that would uh, be great. You know, I'll see if anybody's available. Maybe so Stephen definitely Garrett. Maybe Stephen keep an Garrett. eye on the feeds. Yeah. Stephen okay. Garrett. Stephen Garrett. That's a good idea. That's yes. a really good idea, as a matter of fact. Hold on. I'm going to call him right now. I got to go. Great. Well, until you do, why don't you tell oh, us what we're okay. going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're going to discuss Peter Parker, a.k.a. The Amazing Spider-Man. Though, I got to say, actually, I think it was uh, Andrew Garfield. The Andrew Garfield Spidey was The Amazing Spider-Man, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I think you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I, I, I digress. I, I, you know, the webbed crime fighter saved Hollywood and is now the sixth highest grossing film of all time. Is it silly to say the movie would have grossed even more if it weren't for COVID? I mean, the movie is making so much money. Apparently, movies for young people can still make big bucks. Will Hollywood listen? Now, speaking of movies for young people, what about movies for old people? Hollywood is certainly paying attention to them this week. They're paying attention to Sundance, where all those movies for old people are. And I don't mean old, old people. I just mean adults. And I don't mean adults, adults, but you, you know. Keep I mean. going. Keep going. A a anyway. Uh, Look, Sundance, are, there's all sorts of fiction and nonfiction movies are playing up there and actually not up there. Nobody's up there because it's all virtual this year. I'll tell you about the best movies I've seen so far this week. And Michael will bring up the documentary on poor working conditions for Disney employees right before he then probably goes on to tell us about how much the bobs are making uh, this past, what, 2021, 20, whatever the fiscal year is these days. On Inside Baseball, we will look at the streaming numbers for TV. Because Netflix pretty much nailed its estimate of how many new subscribers the world's biggest streamer would sign up this past quarter. But Wall Street freaked out anyway. And Nielsen shared the biggest streaming properties of the entire year. And guess what? Squid Game? Yeah, it's not 
at the top of the list of original properties. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we're going to turn it over to you, Michael, entertainment journalist extraordinaire. You're going to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. We're looking at box office around the world for the week ending January 23rd. Spider-Man No Way Home. One of the biggest hits of all time is also the biggest hit of the week. It grossed another $66 million. Its worldwide total is $1,691,000,000. It will not, I think, break the top five because it would have to hit $2 billion. I don't think it's got another $300 million in it. However, it just grossed $66 million. So if it can maintain that for four weeks, five, six, seven weeks, it's got legs, obviously, eight of them. But if it keeps going... It could hit $2 billion. It could break into the top five. That would be amazing. It's certainly done really well, and it did it all without China. So when Hollywood is aching and wondering, should we hire Richard Gere? Should we not hire Richard Gere? Should we make this movie or that movie? Let's make sure we don't offend them. Maybe you shouldn't worry so much. You want to make movies that reflect the world and the diversity, and there's lots of great Chinese culture to write and talk and do about and cast great people in great movies, but avoiding everything that might possibly annoy China, like basketball, eh, not a good idea. Well, I don't think there's any way to avoid everything that might annoy China since that shifts all the time. Tell and it to Richard it, Gere. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, fine. You know, he could have done, yeah, that's true. Uh, but it's, you it's know, hard, it's right. that's impossible. Yeah, you, 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 you don't want to insult any country unnecessarily. You don't want to offend any cultural sensibilities, but that's different from extolling the values that you always embrace and support and holding up oppressed peoples around the world saying, I can't make this $1 million documentary film because that might block my hit big blockbuster. That's a genuine concern. They will do that, but that's not how you need to do business, especially when you see how much money you can make without that market. And number two around the world is Scream. $36 million this week. It's at $85 million worldwide. It's already tripled its reported budget. So that's a hit. You know, I, I really can't wait to see this documentary about the uh, the, the Munch painting. <laughs> at number three is Sing 2, the animated film. That made another $25 million. That's at $240 million worldwide, also tripling its reported budget. So movies are making money, and they're not just ones for kids. Sing 2 is a family film. It only cost $85 million to make, so that's not as heavy a lift as a $200 million Pixar film. But still, that's good money worldwide. And it's better than making none. The King's Man is not doing so great. That made $12 million this week. That's at $105 million worldwide. They can always console themselves by saying COVID. Embrace well, also think about it. It's, 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 a, it's a Fox film that was being released by Disney kind of as an afterthought. If Fox was releasing this film, they probably would have, in my opinion, done a better job. Well, given the reviews for the movie and that it's a prequel without the main star of the film, Taron Edgerton, I think it was a heavy lift to begin with. Prequel set in a period piece, not with the main star of the first two movies. That's pretty hard. So I'm not sure that Fox would have done a great job with it anyway. But China is doing a great job with their own movies. Embrace Again is at the box office. That's about the Wuhan lockdown in the first three months of the pandemic. That made $12 million this week. It's at $140 million worldwide. Also doing well in China is G-Storm, that Hong Kong thriller. That's about to hit $100 million. And another me, the Chinese period comedy, sort of a Prince and the Pauper thing where an actor bumps into his double. That movie is at $65 million. And a little bit lower, popping back onto the charts. Maybe it opened in another country. Maybe it opened in um, uh, Korea or something. I'm not sure what's going on with Fireflies in the Sun, which is that 
remake of John Q, the Denzel Washington movie that was originally branded as a sequel to the sheep movie that it had nothing to do with. No cat. No, they just slapped the title on it just to say, yeah, it's a sequel just to try and, and piggyback on that audience. But it's done well on its own. Fireflies in the Sun grossed $4 million this week. It's at $170 million worldwide. Going back to the top of the charts, right after the Chinese film Embrace Again is The Matrix Resurrections. That made $8 million. It's slowing down heavily. $150 million worldwide. Again, I would say no matter when they release this film, I don't think that's going to catch fire. And Nightmare Alley is not catching fire. That's at $14 million worldwide. It got a big boost. It, it opened up overseas and made about $5 million this week, but it's not going to have good legs, I think, anywhere it's playing. We'll have to see. And here in North America, Redeeming Love is a Christian Western period romance that had a, a modest opening at $4 million. And in the UK, Kenneth Branagh's Oscar hopeful Belfast opened up to a very strong $3 million. That's now at $10 million worldwide. Licorice Pizza is also hoping to do well. That made $2 million this week. West Side Story made about $2 million this week. That's hoping to get some Oscar glory, and they're going to be in theaters when the Oscar nominations come out, and they all hope for a big boost, just like the Japanese animated film Bell, a.k.a. The Dragon and the Freckled Princess, which made another $3 million worldwide. It's in theaters here in North America. That, too, is hoping to get a little boost from Oscar. And we know the Chinese box office will get a boost next week, won't they, Sperling? Well, provided that uh, people are allowed to gather in public places, yes, because it's it's Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, and that is traditionally a time when people travel, they go home, uh, usually from, you know, sometimes from very far away. Uh, you know, they head from the cities back into uh, the, you know, where they're from. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of migra migration. Uh, that said, uh, with COVID, the question is, will, you know, which cities will be in lockdown? I mean, there's close to, you know, 20, 30 million people in lockdown right now in China. That's right, which is about mm, 2% of the country. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. The Chinese New Year is January 31st through February 15th. It's a two-week celebration. The About eight films are scheduled to open up on February 1st. And I think we've seen this with some other Chinese holidays, especially the New Year. I think this happened last year. People weren't traveling as much, but that meant they were sitting around. They weren't wasting two or three or four days traveling. They had more time to go to the movies. So, in fact, the movies, if they're able to go to the theater, the fact that they're not traveling actually can boost the box office because they're saving all that travel time. They're just doing it where they are. And a lot of those people are in big cities traveling to smaller towns where there aren't as many screens. So you're actually keeping the people in the big cities. We want everyone to be safe and healthy. We're not hoping for any lockdowns or any travel to be restricted. We want people to be with their families. But it is possible that if all these workers stay in the major cities, That'll give a boost to the box office. That's the crazy way exhibitors think, isn't it? <laughs> they're like, it's it, always it, about the box is. office. They're, they're always saying, not only should there be a lockdown, there should be a lockdown in my cinema. Everybody <laughs> should be locked into my cinema. And have to keep buying tickets and popcorn. Now, exactly. China, you never know what they're going to do. Spider-Man No Way Home, no China release. But what did they announce this week? Woody Allen's A Rainy Day in New York is getting a China release on February 25th, a movie no one was asking for. And on the plus <laughs> side, Death on the Nile is getting a release in China right after the end of the holiday, the New Year holiday. So it'll be the first Western film after that sort of unofficial blackout period. It gets released in China on February 19th, which is pretty darn close to its uh, release in the rest of the world. The movie comes out in Europe on February 9th. 
and the United States on February 11th. So it's just like eight days after its U.S. release. So that's great. That's what Hollywood is hoping for. They're making movies to entertain the world. China needs movies. Hopefully everybody can work it out and uh, and get along. But all I know is if they book Batman, the Batman, they're going to need a lot more screen times, aren't they? Yeah. Why, and why is that? Because, of course, the movie is like 900 hours long. It's three hours long. Three hours. <laughs> yeah, it's the longest. You, you could literally get, get trapped on an island in that period of time. You could watch eight episodes of Batman on TV in that time. Yeah, exactly. That, um, that's but, crazy. you know, I, I think that this is a, a streaming thing. I think streaming got us used to watching longer stories over a longer period of time. and But still three hours at a clip. I mean, that's I can tell you. The the groan you heard uh, last week was from movie theater operators going, ah, oh, three hours. No, it doesn't matter. Just means more time to go back for a second round of popcorn. And they're going to keep making Batman movies, and they're going to keep making remakes like you can't believe it. A Christmas Story, the holiday perennial starring Peter Billingsley. It's coming back. They're making a sequel set in the 70s, and yes, Peter will be in it. Iron Chef is getting a reboot on Netflix. Fatal Attraction is getting rebooted on Paramount+. Plus. Joshua Jackson, star of Dawson's Creek back in the day. And what was that sci-fi show? I forget. I shouldn't even mention it. Um, but he, Pacey, I remember him as Pacey. He's going to be starring in Fatal Attraction. How do you make a TV series out of a movie about a man having an affair and then being stalked by the woman? Is it like an anthology where every year it's a different guy screwing away on his spouse? I that's, guess. That's I don't my know. thought. I don't, I don't know how you spin one story out like that, but uh, even Black Orpheus, this is an, a weird one. Black Orpheus, the classic film, is coming to Broadway in a new stage version. The movie introduced uh, Bossa Nova to the world. It's a retelling of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice set during Carnival, and it's coming to Broadway with new songs by Sergio Mendez and a new book by Nilo Cruz. Um, Town, anyone? There is a show yeah. on Broadway about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. They're going to bring a second show to Broadway. This show was happening like five, 10 years ago, and this sort of slowed it down. I get it. But dudes, I'm sure it's different, but you might want to wait. <laughs> That's all. Oh, and Squid Game. Yes, of course, they're doing a sequel to Squid uh, Not a sequel. A second season of Squid Game. How could they not? It made so much money. The only thing that upset me about this was that they referenced how this is just the beginning of the Squid Game universe. I'm like, oh, shut up. Make a new season of Squid Game, but don't call it the Squid Game universe. We don't need like a whole series devoted to the guy who designed the Squid Game game. We don't need a show about the guy who cleans up the place after hours. We don't need a Squid Game universe. Just make us make another season and try to cash in. That's all right. But Pan Sundance is cashing in, aren't they? Well, yeah, but not as much as you would think. And what I mean by that is normally at this point in the Sundance Film Festival, you know, first weekend is over, there's usually at least one or two acquisitions that are, are of note. Uh, there were a couple before the festival began, certainly, that were uh, kind of noteworthy. Uh, and uh, although, frankly, I think one of those was You Won't Be Alone, which is this kind of Terrence Malick-esque uh, Moldovian uh, horror film. It's like uh, I, I don't Terrence even Malick horror it. film. Those words don't belong together. Anyway, yeah, it's not it's, a film you see as very commercial. Correct, and do, yet Focus Features picked it up. Do you so think go figure. the slow market is because people aren't together in Sundance? I think the slow market is because you've had now two years uh, where movie theaters reopened and people went, 
wow, look at all these movies that, that play at Sundance that aren't getting any traction at all in movie theaters anymore. So well, really, the only no, people no, that no, should be buying are Sundance. Or- that's two years of COVID. It's not two years of these movies. Right. Not necessary. And most movies from Sundance never succeed commercially. So if that's, you know, that's just the duel you're playing. You're lucky if you find one commercial hit out of Sundance. You also are investing in careers, finding people. You know, if you're a smaller distributor, you're not buying right. a movie because you think it's going to make $30 million. You're buying it because you believe in their career. You know, it will be a valuable part of your library, et cetera, right? Yes, and uh, you're also uh, kind of, well, now, that's really, speaking of libraries, that's really what people are, are looking at is which streamers will pick, pick up which movies. Fresh is a, a kind of a midnight, it was in the midnight section. Uh-huh. It's uh It's a horror film, but not really a horror film. It's like a suspense thriller slash horror, a little bit gory. I don't want to give anything away, but it's about it's about a girl dating, right? It's about a girl dating, and you have to have a strong appetite. Well, yes, because we've seen what jerks men can be. So it's a a young woman on dating spree and finds out it ain't easy out there. I was really interested. I was really interested in uh, Cha Cha Real Smooth. Uh, Yes, okay, this is the guy who directed Shit House. Yes, it is. And that is the name of the the film uh, that won the South by Southwest Film Festival a couple of years ago. Uh, His name is Cooper Rafe, and he uh, stars in his Cha-Cha Real Smooth. It's a film he plays a bar mitzvah party starter. Okay, so that's already the type of film you're talking about. Uh, (laughs) And he has always had a thing for older women and he's fresh out of college. He goes home and is living with his parents. He becomes a bar mitzvah party starter by accident because, you know, it's better than his other job at meat sticks, which I assume is the highest hot dogs I hope <laughs> he's so. working at meat sticks in the mall. Uh, and he uh, falls for Dakota Johnson, who is the mother of a, uh, the party planner hitting on the mother of the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah child. Um, no, no, it- no, no. It's, it's, it's just an attendee, but oh, okay. Uh, was it good? Yes, it's good. It's funny. It's very sweet. Uh, it's moving. It actually works in a in a Sundance kind of way. Is I Co- know that you know, is Cooper and, Rafe the Sundance it boy. For right now, I think yeah, you can definitely look at him and he, he, very much like uh, the Duplass brothers were. He's the he's this year's Duplass brothers. Mm-hmm. Well, the and national maybe a little bit more commercial, frankly. Yeah. Well, National Geographic picked up a documentary. As soon as I saw just the stills, I said, "Wow, I want to see this." That's Fire of Love, a documentary about two people, Katya and Maurice Kraft, who love volcanoes and ended up loving each other, and they travel the globe looking at volcanoes. They're volcanologists. They're, they're they do it in a serious level, though they're not necessarily academics i'm not sure what the deal is there but well they, they be they're they're academics mm-hmm. uh well I, i'm not giving anything away to say that of course they're it's very well known that they died doing what they love i did and not know that <laughs> uh oh okay well yeah it, you know that from the very beginning of the movie so, okay of the movie so i'm not giving anything away because uh they died in 1991 in uh, you know studying a volcano 91 yes and so a lot of this footage is from the 60s all the way through the 90s. Wow, that's not uh, so easy because you didn't have the as portable a camera exactly, for much of that exactly. time. Interesting. Uh, Miranda July is a, a filmmaker, actress who narrates the film, though she didn't direct it. Uh, it's a very timely movie given what happened in Tonga recently. Uh, like literally. There's always the volcanoes. There's always volcanoes. This one, uh, it, it's. I saw the film. It was the first film like you. I saw the, the stills and went, oh, I'm seeing that movie. Uh, it's a fascinating documentary. The 
they, it could have rested solely on uh, just its its images because they have some of the best images of volcanoes in the world. They were unafraid to be to walk out onto a volcano, like an, an alive, active volcano. I love it all. when people say, "Oh, it's a timely movie." It's like, "Oh, this film is about uh, you know prejudice in society, and it's so timely." It's like, "Yeah, sadly, it will be timely fifty years from now too." Now, which brings yeah. us to eight ninety two, when with John Boyega stars as an ex veteran who's holding up a bank. Yes, this film uh, is. I wouldn't be shocked if it won Sundance mm-hmm. or if Cha Cha Real Smooth won. Eight ninety two, John Boyega. If you had any doubts about him as an actor, and I this did, will, and I did. Yeah, this will definitely change that. He really does a great job, and it's a true story that is directed by Abby Damaris Corbin, and she does a great job of. Uh, and it's Michael Williams' last role on film. Oh. It's it's very very good. Set in one location, the bank for the most part. Uh, he, it's just a very tight suspense film. It's, I, yeah, I won't you tell know, you how it is. Uh, he won me over with um, uh, Small Axe, his role in Small Axe. I thought, okay, this guy's got the deal because from Star Wars, I wasn't convinced, but Oscar Isaac is not good in Star Wars either. So that doesn't necessarily mean anything. They're just people who aren't good in that sort of film. But 892, you say it's tight. It's 103 minutes. Take that, the Batman. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it, it's very good. And he does such a good job in this film. Very cool. And I love Emma Thompson. I know she has chops. She can do it all. She can write. She can star. Has she directed yet? I'm not sure. But she's a, a, a real talent. And she's got a new movie there, which sounds awesome. It's about a, a woman who's never had an orgasm. And she well, believes. Yes. And she hires a sex therapist to help her perhaps find out what it's like. Well, it's not really a sex therapist so much as a sex worker. Oh, there uh, you go. Well, I'm just, you know, sure. Uh, and this is, this could have been a play, by the way, because it takes right. place in... In the hotel room. Uh, where right, she, it's a two-hander know, with two people. It's called Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, was this a play? Because it's in a hotel room with two people. And if not, it may well become one. Yes, that is very true. Because th- it very if this movie never gets released, it could easily be, well, even if it does get released, well, it, it will be. be. It's Emma Thompson. Yes. Now, this was a premiere, so it's not in competition. Here's my thing. I am shocked that 892 and Good Luck to you, Leo Grand, have not been picked up yet. Cha-Cha Real Smooth, okay, I could see it being picked up by, like, say, an Apple and then maybe released or an Amazon, but I am really shocked that either of those haven't been picked up yet. And maybe there's a bidding war going on for both of them, and, and uh, you know, who knows? Uh, but I, I think both of those films are, you know, are worthy of, of being acquired and released in theaters. And certainly... This film gets a lot of buzz because of how vulnerable uh, Emma Thompson said she was while making it. And certainly she's a woman of a certain age and she does not hold anything back. And I don't mean anything. So now you're talking, you've named six movies and you think these are all great movies. Are they going to be on your best of the year list? How good are these movies? Will Cha-Cha be on one of your best of the year list? Do you think it's that worthy? Well, or is it January, just a good movie? It's, no, it's a good it's, movie. Either it's, it's good, good enough to be on your best of the year list or it's not. Uh, that probably will not be. What about uh, the Emma, What about the Emma? Which one of these will you say this is absolutely going to be one of the best films of the year? Any of them, or are they just fun, um, good movies? That's fine. They don't. Everything doesn't uh, have to Utama. be great. Uh-huh. Utama is definitely a movie. It's it's directed by Alejandro. Oh, I should have figured out how to pronounce his name. Layo. You know what? Alejandro Greasy. Racist. No, well, it, he's Bolivian. It's said. So in you're still racist. 
that I can't pronounce. Uh, <laughs> you know, give me a break here. The vanishing way uh, of life of the the Quechua. Well done. Quechua, Quechua, sorry. The Quechua <laughs> uh, Bolivian uh, indigenous people. Uh, and they live in the Bolivian highlands and they're, you know, you know, llama. This, this is your herders. favorite movie, The Fest, so far? So far, this movie, Utama, and I have to, you know, this is a great, great movie. If a movie is meant to take you to a place you might never go and tell you a story you knew nothing about, this movie does that. And it does it quickly. It does it well. Uh, it's... It's beautiful to look at, absolutely stunning. It tells a story with very few words. Uh, and in, in the background, it's, it's not heavy-handed at all, is the fact that you know these people who are living off the land, no, it's not raining as much anymore. Climate change is affecting them. <laughs> Sorry. And it's forcing them to move to the cities. So you know, off the land and into the cities. A Love Song is another uh, movie by uh, Max Walker Silverman. Very quiet. Dale Dickey stars an and it's just hardly any dialogue, and yet it's a it's a touching movie. Will that be a best of the year? Probably not, because it's a very specific kind of mood piece. But Utama, definitely, I you know I wouldn't be shocked if, if you hear about that film come Oscar time. If if it's handled properly, that could definitely see some awards action. And it's a both really of those movies are under movie. ninety minutes. Yes. Uh, and and exactly the length they should be. You wouldn't want to spend any more time in those worlds. Uh, a love song, Dale Dickey, uh, is basically living in a trailer waiting for an old flame, an old high school flame, to maybe, possibly, come see her uh, that she hasn't seen since the high school days. And it's about love's lost, love's never had, you know, unrequited love. Well, tell me this. Uh, you know, did you watch the Disney documentary, the documentary about Disney World and the conditions for some of their workers, which some people say are not fair, which has been made by a, 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 a Abigail Disney, Abigail, who is, what is her relationship to Walt? She's a niece, a uh, granddaughter. A niece, I, I forget. Think, yeah. yeah. Um, and no, but I did, nor did I watch the Janes, which is a, a film about the Jane collective. Well, if you haven't uh, seen it's a it, documentary. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the reason I mention it is because this is one of those festivals where there's a documentary about the Jane collective and then a fictional film about the Jane collective called, called Jane. It's a biopic. It's a by the numbers biopic starring Elizabeth Banks and Sigourney Weaver, but Elizabeth Banks is a great job. And there's some serious, I mean, it's, it's, by, basically, if it's by the numbers. It's not a great job. You can't yeah, say both of those things. You don't need to be polite. If it's an okay movie, it's all right. We can move on. <laughs> you know, Phyllis Naj does a does a decent job of actually taking you inside the you know. The Jane Collective is, of course, an abortion counseling service. Uh, it was an underground was. service in Chicago yeah. uh, from the in the sixties and seventies when abortion was illegal in most of the United States. So that's the there's a documentary about that and this fictional film, which is apparently okay. Right, and then of course there is this documentary uh, about. Uh, which I didn't see about uh, Princess Diana, but you're talking about the one about Disney yeah. uh, and and the working conditions there. I didn't see it. I don't know if it's the talk of of uh, Sundance, of virtual no, it's the Sundance. talk of Disney. <laughs> it, remember, nobody's at Sundance this year, right? Right, now. but it's the talk of Disney. They're talking about it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they are. She's an Emmy but winning it's... director and producer, by the way. So she's a uh, she's you know she's a, an active uh, a person in Hollywood. Just because she's the uh, niece or granddaughter or whatever her relationship is to Uncle Walt, um, she's the grandniece of Walt Disney and the granddaughter of Roy Disney. So there you go. She's Roy Disney's granddaughter. So bless her. And she's been holding the feet to the fire of Disney, saying people are making too much money. Which brings us to the pay. People making too much money. 
Yeah. So yeah. Bob Iger last year, his his final year at Disney, he made forty six million dollars. Bob Chapek, he's got some catching up to do. He made a measly thirty four point five million dollars, which I will round up to thirty five. <laughs> What's half a million between friends? So forty six oh. and thirty five million dollars. So eighty one million dollars for the two Bobs. I hope they can get by. I hope they're doing all right during COVID. Well, you know, one of them doesn't have a job anymore, so. That's right. He needs every penny. So does, exactly. unfortunately, the, I, I put that under social justice, our social justice sexual misconduct section. I am looking forward to watching that Bill Cosby documentary on Showtime. I have not watched it yet, but I, we have heard interesting news from Broadway. Harry Potter has been fired. Okay, not, not Harry Potter, but star James Snyder, who plays Harry Potter in the Broadway show Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. He is the man who plays the boy who lived in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on Broadway. He's been fired from the show after an independent investigation. It happened in reaction to a complaint by the actress who plays his wife in the show. She's taking a leave of absence. He's gone. And for the moment, no one is talking about what exactly happened. So that's all we know. Harry Potter has been fired. And we joke sometimes about we make some glib reference. We know these issues are very important. We know pronouncing people's names is really important. That's why on Utama, Sperling was kicking himself, saying, oh, I wish I'd found a video clip or something to know how to play, pronounce Alejandro Grisi's name properly and the name of the people that the movie is about. It's hard. We always try to do some good prep work, but sometimes we drop the ball, and we'll try to do better next time. Yes. Now, speaking of next time, the next time we see the Grammys, it'll be April 3rd. They'll be in Las Vegas. That's right. Award season is upon us. The Grammys are moving to Las Vegas. The Annie Awards, they are moving to March and going virtual. They're saying, yeah, we're going to delay our awards a little bit and we're going to go virtual. That's how it's done, Producers Guild and AFI. You know, you want to get together, but it's not always possible. The BAFTAs, last year or the year before, they gave out an honorary award to Noel Clark. Even though people had reached out to him and said, this guy has a really bad track record, they were just like, whatever. And then they just gave out the award and it blew up in their face. Now they're saying no honorary awards this season. They're going to form a panel to try and vet the people in future years to make sure they don't give it to somebody who's got a really bad reputation. <laughs> so that's, that's a big mess. And the Art Directors Guild, they've done it again. They've announced their nominees for this year and they've announced 20 films. Why? Because they have... A nominees for five movies under the category of period film, five under the category of fantasy sci-fi, five contemporary films, and five animated films. I guess in a way you could say they did name their top five animated films and their top 15 films in all the other categories. That's not the way to do it. It makes sense to break them down into these categories, but you need to have an overall category, best art direction, period. Whether it's animated, contemporary, fantasy, or period, just tell us what the five best films are of the year. That's how you can influence other people. The way you've done it, we're not even going to bother to tell people who you nominated because it doesn't matter. You named too many movies. You're not laying your chips down on the table and saying these are the best films of the year when it comes to art direction. No matter what type of film it is, these are the best. That's what you need to do. Well, what do you need to do when uh, you hear some of these stories in Big Deal or Big Whoop? Ooh, we need to weigh in. That's right, because Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Here's our first story. Microsoft is one of the biggest gaming companies in the world. You know, all it had to do was spend $69 billion on buying Activision Blizzard. <laughs> Heck, we could have become one of the biggest gaming companies in the world if we bought Activision Blizzard for $69 billion. Totally. In cash. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. We we don't have the cash, but I've got a Bitcoin lying around here somewhere, and unfortunately, I've lost the password to that wallet. Oh. So actually, yeah. Keep well, going. The company is struggling with a poisonous atmosphere for female workers recently. Now, that was a trick sentence because both Microsoft and Activision <laughs> are failing in the Me Too era. Okay. They, they had, you know, they'd rather yeah. talk about games. Okay. And how the company behind the Xbox platform now owns the company that makes Call of Duty, Candy Crush, and other franchises. And it's all going to populate the metaverse too. Oh. Sure, it will. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal, right? One of the biggest yeah, platforms. I mean, Activision, its its stock has sunk fifty percent this year, uh, so it was in definitely in in you know acquisition territory. And Brian Kotick, its CEO, and who has been with the company since nineteen ninety one, yeah, there's been a lot of talk and reports out of that company with the employees, like you know banging the drum about how horrible so, the atmosphere is there, especially for women. Yeah. Microsoft. I, I've, I haven't heard the Microsoft. Oh, stories. well, yeah, no, Bill Gates. No, they've got investigations. Oh, they've had a poisonous atmosphere. He, he was hitting on women in meetings. I mean, he, 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 he multiple accusations against Bill Gates behaving inappropriately uh, at Microsoft. But Bill Gates hasn't been with that company now. For, right. But the company culture hasn't changed, has it? So I have no there's idea. no reason to think. Know. Yeah, no, they've never had a reckoning. So uh, they have a problem. They have a reputational problem as well. And they've also have, uh, you know, People blowing the whistle on the company and having to leave the company. You know, they've got a lot of issues, too. But, you know, look, uh, you know, who knows whether this deal will actually happen, whether the Justice oh, will. Department. They're not going to block yeah. this one. They, they, they made a point of saying this will make us the third biggest. Uh, right, know, right. They, they really wanted to point out, look, you know, there's still two companies above us. You got Tencent, which is the biggest. And then you got Sony above us. So we're not going to be just yeah. because we're buying. It's the it's Microsoft's largest acquisition ever. Yeah. And they've got World of Warcraft. That's another uh, uh, Activision uh, franchise, I should say. The one thing I thought was interesting was there was a good focus in talking about it, about all the franchises that they have that are sort of dormant and they haven't done a lot with in many years and how they really do see a lot of value in them. They talked about them in ways that show uh, they know what they're talking about. The people who are involved in this deal, they see the value in them. There's a lot of stuff that they can work on just beyond, you know, piling on top and buying the big name properties that are already well known, like Call of Duty. So we shall see. Yes. Now, this next story, the head of the FCC proposed a new rule to open up competition in cable TV for apartment buildings and, and similar residences. Chairwoman Jessica Rosenversal, and yes, I did actually. Oh, look good job. Up. Yes, uh, she introduced a measure that would end the management of apartment buildings, condos, mobile home parks, and public buildings from getting money to make one carrier the exclusive provider in a building. So it always drove me nuts because you live in a, an apartment building in New York City. It's like you have Comcast or nothing. There's right. almost well, no competition anyway. But when you get into one of these locations, you have zero. You can't say, oh, I want a satellite. You can't even go nope. to direct TV. You're just screwed. And it's really annoying. And it, that was one way for the cable companies to come in, pay for the rights, uh, and it would prevent satellites from going on the roofs. Right. That's really what that's you. They'd have no roof rights. Uh, well, anyway, the. Uh, you know, this is meant to to force, uh, you know, easier access for competitors to these buildings, whether it's satellite cable or similar services. So people, you know, people who live in apartment buildings wouldn't be given just one option alone when it comes to TV service. That's the goal here. And presumably, by the way, Wi-Fi, because they kind of come in hand in hand. These And days. that's a big deal, right? Even if you're going over the top, you got to pay for Wi-Fi. 
Right. Now, how many people you, you think, okay, how many people does this really affect? In the United States, one third of all people live in these types of dwellings. So it is kind of a big deal in my opinion. Big deal or big whoop? Well, you said it. It is a big deal, a very big deal. It should have happened 30 years ago, <laughs> but better late than never, I guess. And even though I've gone over the top on my service, I'm still paying to my local cable company for Wi-Fi. I'm not actually in a building with an exclusive thing. There's only one option really for me here, though I could get a satellite dish. But it's good to know that in a lot of parts of this country where there could be competition, now there will be. Because those Wi-Fi bills are getting bigger and bigger as they see it's the only thing they're still paying for. Like, oh, that Wi-Fi that was 50 is now 80. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. You know, it's always, you know... Cable companies have been somewhat weakened. You know, people are cutting the cords. And just as people are cutting the cords, you have the FCC going, you know, we should really regulate this industry. It's like, great, you're regulating an industry people are walking away from. That's fantastic. <laughs> Next, buggy whips. In any case, uh, comedian John Stewart has won two Grammys, five Peabody's, and 22 Emmy Awards. So, John, stop working and soaking up all those awards. And by the way, it's time for you to do a one-man show if you want to, at least on Broadway, if you want to get that Tony Award, you slacker. In any case, he's got another award coming. Uh, Stewart will receive the Mark Twain Prize for Comedy, joining the likes of Richard Pryor, Lily Tomlin, and last year's winner, Dave Chappelle. Big deal or big whoop? Um, it's great that he's retired now and he can enjoy the... Tw oh, I'm sorry, what? Oh, apparently he has a new show on Apple TV called Hosting. He's hosting The Problem with Jon Stewart, so... So he's the problem not with John Stewart is he doesn't have a Tony Award. But yeah, that's to work and an Oscar. But he's been working on Oscar. He's been making movies. He's been trying to do something there. But Broadway, nothing. Can he sing? Can he dance? No idea. But it's obviously not a big deal. It's a big whoop. You can look at the list of the people who've won the Mark Twain Prize and see, wow, <laughs> it ain't easy, is it? Honoring people. I I know how the Baptists feel. You honor people, and five years later, you're like, oh. But no, yeah. we do need to talk about Bill Cosby. I think it was right to honor him. Uh, for the work that he did. You wouldn't do that today, but his work will remain an important legacy. However horrific he was in his private life, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to put him in public and garner him with laurels, but he does have a significant body of work. I don't think that looks bad in retrospect because they didn't know at the time necessarily. So now this next door, YouTube, okay, is done, finished with original content. Oh, never mind. Oh, wait, no, wait, no, no, strike that. YouTube is done finished with paying for original content <laughs> when millions of people all over the world create free content to post on YouTube and then do everything they can to go out and get views. Why should YouTube spend time and money trying to create its own original content? The company has shut down its in-house studio, though we'll spend some money backing original content from people of color and children. But in general, why compete with Netflix and Disney plus when it's just not your jam, man? Okay. And by the way, lots of people are tossing content at you for free. So why, why bother? That's right, YouTube. You be you. Big deal or big whoop? You be you, YouTube. You do that. Um, it's a big deal. It's one less competitor in the market. We've seen this coming. You know, they sold off Cobra Kai, right? Which has turned into a big hit for Netflix, which really knows how to cherry pick stuff that can grow on their service. But we saw this coming for a while now. At the beginning, I think I said, why are they going? I mean, everybody wants original content, but they're all original content. Yes, it's fan base, but they were also starting to pay the people who were creating the stuff and becoming social media influencers. And I guess it was to keep them on your platform, not going to TikTok or not going to somewhere else. But in general, you know, the ads should be paying them enough money, you know, the reach that you have. So 
I don't think it was necessarily wrong to try and make some original content, but it just seems a lot more smart and logical to do what they're doing now, which is let's focus on what we do best that makes us different from everyone else. Well, 10 years ago, it was hard to get good content. And what I mean by that is if you were a creator, it was hard to make good content. You had to have cameras, you had to have the right lights, you had to have the right sound, you had to know what you were doing. Now, 10 years later, people have figured it out. Oh, you mean the amateurs? Yeah, the amateurs, yeah. yeah. They figured, and and, and the amateur stuff is fantastic. So they're like, well, we could pay them or they could just do it on their own, which is what they're doing anyway. And we don't have to pay them and they're going to bring it to us anyway. So, and it looks pretty good now. Didn't 10 years ago, but it does now. That's kind of like a very insidery thing, though. To, to uh, you're trying to lead us into inside baseball. That's the category where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the biz and, more importantly, how they affect you. Sperling, what's our story this week? Well, if you are a Netflix stock owner, my condolences. <laughs> okay, that's how it affects you because Netflix had a week of both good and bad news. The company nailed its estimation of how many new subscribers would sign up for its service, even though we're coming out of a pandemic and a ton of people signed up last year and no one knows anything, really. Still, they predicted adding 8.5 million subscribers. And in fact, they did add 8.3 million new subscribers to their 222 million subscribers worldwide. That's a lot of people. So Netflix was just really 200,000 subscribers short of their own mark. Well, Wall Street flipped out. It was a disaster. Sell, 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 sell. Apparently, Wall Street can't handle with you know the slightest shortfall or the idea of a mature business being mature. Uh, so would we call it a business of a certain age? Anyway, <laughs> does it matter that Netflix dominated the charts, listing the most popular original property and the most popular acquired shows? In st- they, had, they have all of it. Uh, no, it did not. Actually, it didn't. Uh, its stock fell 40%. In two months, it fell 20% just on Friday. We explain, we're going to explain now why this is absolutely insane and why Netflix hasn't suddenly become a poorly run failing business. Yeah, first the numbers. They added 8 million subscribers, right? Added 8.3 million subscribers to be exact. They estimated they would add 8.5 million. Uh, They now have 222 million subscribers worldwide. Remember one year ago, there was a massive increase in people coming, signing up for streaming services all over the place. And everybody recognized that this was a huge bulge and they might churn out or they might, you know, nobody will be there in the next two years to sign up because everybody who was thinking about or even close to thinking about it signed up during the pandemic. So we knew there was going to be a slowdown and we knew it was going to be really tricky to estimate how many people would keep coming to your service and would you keep growing or would there be even a fallback? Maybe everybody who is not at home says, I don't need 10 services and they cut some of them and maybe Netflix would be one of them. So it was an extremely difficult market. No one can seem to predict how many toilet paper you need, how many workers you need for McDonald's. Everything is really, really hard. And Netflix pretty much nailed it. 8.3 8.3 rather than 8.5. The idea that they were off to me is insane. When you're looking at here, 222 the million people. Here's the real problem. You had a company that was trading at multiples over what it should have traded for. That's different. That's a different issue. And I'm not talking I'm not talking about whether they were overvalued in the first place. Are you, are you saying they just but, use but this as an excuse that's what's to happening. sell it? They're say- yes, exactly. They're basically saying, oh, okay. So we, we thought that it was going to keep going to 400, 500, 600 million people. That's eh, actually, it's not. It's a mature business. So it actually isn't worth, I don't know what, what the stock price was before, $800 a share. It's, uh, it's really only worth $400 a share. So you know what? I'm going to start selling. And, that, and when everybody decides to do that all at once, you have Friday. 
<laughs> well, let's let's hope so. That's what it is, rather than thinking it's not a good business because that would be bizarre. I think all Wall Street can focus on is growth. They don't like mature businesses, so they're no, not going to say don't. tomorrow, "Oh, this is a great business." They have two hundred twenty-two million people paying them X amount of dollars a month. They're making over twice as much, if not three times as much, as Disney is from each one of their subscribers. Right? Disney has half the subscribers, but they're making a third per, per subscriber. So Netflix is way, way beyond Disney in terms of how much money they're grossing from all these subscribers. So, no, I don't think Wall Street has come to its senses. They just want to see growth. They want to see 10, 20, 30%. Once you stop growing by leaps and bounds every year, they lose interest and they run to the next shiny bobble. But it's still a very good business. They're still making good money at some point. They will need to balance out how much money they're spending on content. But you know what? Right now, they're burning up huge libraries, which are very, very valuable. You always care about the hot new show on, on Netflix. It's Squid Game. But guess what? They didn't create Gilmore Girls. They acquired the catalog. But that's the top 10 acquired show. That's a show from 20 years ago. No promotion. Nothing has happened. It's been over, I think, of what? When was the four or five years ago when they did the four-hour miniseries? Why is that a top 10 show? Because people are watching it again. They're just binging it. And that's going to keep happening from now to the end of time. People will say, oh, I'm going to watch Stranger Things. Kids turn 13 or 14 and say, let's watch Stranger Things. Let's watch Orange is the New Black. Let's watch House of Cards. That library they have is hugely valuable. And I think it's a good mature business. So what if it's not growing by leaps and bounds? Neither is the box office. But you're still make, you can still make $10 billion a year on it in North America. Yeah, and that's good money. Yeah. What about France? I like this. Netflix had some good news. They they were touting it as good news in France. Well, I mean, France has always had a tricky situation because if you showed a movie in theaters, then it could not. They have all these like specific windowing that have to do with with Canal Plus. You know, it, it's basically I don't want to say state owned, but it's kind of national television. So if you show if you showed a film in theaters, you had to wait 36 months before heading to a streamer to, to show it on the Internet. OK, three years. Three because it had years. to go to the television, then it had or cable, then it had to go to DVD and Blu-ray, then it had to go to you know it had all of these steps that it had to take. Well, guess what? Th those all sh got shrunk down to fifteen months, right? Which is still an insane long amount of time. Netflix is used right. to showing a movie in a theater and having it on a streamer here in America. Everybody's doing it in forty-five days or seventeen right. days. I think forty-five days is a great number. Uh, your your partner at Celluloid Junkie, Patrick von Sikowski, he said. 45 days isn't great necessarily, but they'll live with it. That's what exhibitors are saying. I think, no, in general, that's a great number because when we looked at the numbers, we saw the vast majority of movies tapped out after 45 days. They had earned 98% of all the money they were going to earn. And if they were still grossing a lot of money, the studios probably aren't going to throw it under streamer unless they're idiots. So I think 45 days in this world, yeah, with big saturation movie screenings of 2,000, 3,000 screens, you can make all your money for most movies in 45 days. So waiting till then to get them on a streamer, that makes sense. So France, yes, they went from 36 to 15 months, but good Lord, that means if a movie of Netflix plays at con, it has to open up in a theater if it plays at con, because that's, that's one of the requirements if it's going to be in competition. So it plays at con, it opens up a theater in the next day in France in 2022. It has to wait until August of 2023 before coming to Netflix. So it's progress, <laughs> but they got a long ways to go. Yes. Well, yeah, but you know, the, it's not stopping Netflix, though. They did pick up the new Lee Daniels film. At first, I thought, what? $65 million for a Lee Daniels film. And I thought, that seems like overpaying. 
but it's an exorcism flick. It stars Andre Day, Octavia Spencer, and Glenn Close. And when I looked at it, he basically has two movies that have had box office runs. One is Precious, a very low-budget movie that made like $60, $70 million. It made a ton of money for its budget. And the other one is Lee Daniels. Which, by the way, Uh Sundance movie. Yeah, there you go. Well done. That was the one from that year. And then the other movie is Lee Daniels' The Butler, which did indeed. It made $180 million worldwide. This movie is even more commercially minded than that one. So it is potentially a movie that could have grossed $180 million worldwide at the box office. But we'll never know because Netflix picked it up. That's true. And uh, but you know what you do know is uh, it'll be it'll be one of their most popular movies of the year on Netflix and hit the streaming charts a year from now. Yeah. And we can't go through all the streaming charts uh, for sake of time since we're pretty much over already. Uh, But Nielsen named their top streaming properties of 2021, at least in the United States. And for people watching on, you know, they they do this for smart TVs, not mobile phones. Not my laptops, which is where I watch a lot of this stuff. And they're only covering Netflix, Disney, Hulu, Amazon, and Apple. So Paramount Plus, Peacock, HBO, y'all need to get on board because you should want to be on these charts. So yeah, they're looking at the top charts. Basically, Eight of the top 10 shows overall, we smushed all the charts together because, you know, acquired shows tend to be racking up more minutes because there's more episodes. So the biggest property last year was uh, not an original property. It was Criminal Minds because 33 billion minutes were watched of Criminal Minds on Netflix. They have acquired that show. It has 322 episodes. But look at what's number two in acquired. It's Coco Melon. The Netflix Kitty Show with 15 episodes. Those kids are watching those episodes over and over and over and over again. 33 billion minutes of those 15 episodes. And I'm sure it's like, what, 20 minutes an episode? It's not like it's an hour and 10 minutes. So, oh my God. But you can look at our charts. We've got Lucifer on top of uh, original shows because it is 93 episodes. 18 billion minutes were watched. Squid Game is number two with just one season. So that's harder to catch up, but 16 billion minutes, it's right up there. And you'll see Bridgerton and you and Kurobukai, The Crown, Longmire's on the list, which explains why they're going to do some new episodes of Longmire. So you can check out all the lists. There's interesting stuff. The top movies, Luca. You know, Disney Plus has been throwing those Pixar films onto Disney Plus. Luca, Raya, and the Last Dragon. Well, that was a Disney movie, not a Pixar movie, right? Uh, Correct. Right. So Luca, Soul, and... Um, Coco, no, that was at the theaters. Luca and Soul are both on this list. Ray and the Last Dragon is on this list, so that I believe had a commercial run a little bit. So you can see that their movies are certainly popular. But if you look at Luca and see 10 billion minutes of Luca were watched, do you really think if that played in theaters for 45 days and grossed maybe $400 million, $600 million, do you think people would be less excited to watch it on Disney Plus? They'd be more excited to watch it on Disney Plus One. Number two, it was only on uh, Disney Plus in the United States and North America, and it was it played in Russia, it played in in Europe, in in different territories. So it didn't have a great it didn't have a great rollout in terms of being able to make money. It still had, uh, you know, it it still had a pretty decent box office uh, in the territories where it did open. That said, one of the things that um, Gower Street Analytics was on CJ Cinema Summit last week, mm. and one of the things they pointed out when you look at box office from 2019 to 2020. It made $50 million worldwide. It really did not get a, a, a fair box office run. It only grossed Right, but it didn't dollars. open in every territory either. No, no, it didn't open almost anywhere, and it was amidst COVID. So yeah, it was a terrible right. time. So it really didn't even get a shot like Spidey did. Well, one of the things they pointed out, Gower Street Analytics, is that what is missing from the box office from 2021 was children's movies. 
Right. With all of the family films. Families were not ready there. to go back, and adult films yeah. mostly. Well, yes, but that's... House of yeah. Gucci being an exception. Right. Yeah, Basically, exactly. young people were going to... They're like, I'm not going to die. <laughs> well, speaking of dying... No, yeah, but actor. one last thing. Uh, when you look at those charts in the movies, think of Encanto. Think how popular that's going to be when it hits Disney+. Plus. Because, well, how popular it is now. But it had that box office run. It had that thing. And now it's, ca- it's gone off like a rocket. If Luca had had a run like Encanto in theaters, it could have gone off like a rocket. Clearly, everyone who saw it likes it. It's 10 billion minutes. It could have been two or three times as big if it had had that opportunity. But like you said, people have died. I don't know how to say his name. Gaspar Ulel. Oh, thank you very much. Very tragic. Anybody dying is sad, especially for them. But he died at the age of 37 after a skiing accident. Uh, he's won two Cesar Awards. He was just He's just in the new Marvel TV series. I just watched the trailer for Moon Knight. He's in that TV series with Oscar Isaac on Disney+. Plus. So very, very sad. Uh, a lot of people died this week. Andre Leontali, the famous fashion journalism icon. He was a Vogue editor at large, but he did all sorts of things. And really beloved person who really pushed for diversity in fashion and exemplified it himself, being sexually fluid and a person of color. So good for him. And really bringing back the caftan. Thank you. Thank you, Andre. Uh, Actress Yvette Mimou died at 80. She's the only actress whose name sounds like it's pronounced by a cat. I love her name, Yvette Mimou. And she was in really hot for like two minutes, but she had an interesting life. And you can read about it in our show notes. Berlin has given me the, the evil eye. Uh, novelist. No, 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 oh. I, was, I was looking up the documentary that uh, Andre Leon, te- that was made of oh, yes. uh, Andre, uh, The Gospel According to Andre. Yeah, Good that's film. a great thing to check out. I really don't know much about Louis Anderson, the stand-up comic, a big guy. He died at the age of 68. He's won three Emmys, two daytime Emmys for his kids' show, Life with Louis, an animated series. And then he just won an Emmy recently as an adult live-action actor playing a character he modeled after his mom in the TV sitcom Baskets. So he's had a really great late period. He's been around for decades. People always like him. He's very nice. Uh, you know, he's, he's got some of the best reviews of his career. So that's a, a pretty nice way to go out, uh, winning a primetime enemy for baskets. And he was mentored by Henny Youngman. That, that's like me being mentored by Buster Keaton. I mean, Henny Youngman <laughs> just sounds like a thousand years ago. He got mentored by Henny Youngman. I know he was around in the 80s, but that still seems amazing to me. Henny Youngman was still around. Meatloaf. Y'all probably heard me go on and on about uh, songwriter Jim Steinman. And talking about him and Meatloaf and their great career together. Well, now Meatloaf has died. They were like musical soulmates. They were a musical married couple. They they dated, they married, they divorced, they got back together, they separated again. But no matter what happened, they were part of each other's lives. We've got a link to the interview he gave to Rolling Stone after Jim Steinman died. It's touching and sweet and over the top, just like uh, Meatloaf always is. He died at the age of 84 and just like an old married couple. Wait, 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 no. He died at the age of 74. 74, I beg your pardon. Just like an old married couple, Jim Steinman died in April of 2021 and nine months later, Meatloaf has died. You see that happen all the time. So, uh, what, you got the lyricist and then the singer die? Like, <laughs> no, no, the, the people who are together for years, the one goes and the other goes pretty quickly. Uh, so well, that's, well, it. you know, uh, Bad Out of Hell, which was, you know, his big debut album, it's one of the best selling albums of all time. Oh, and I had no course. idea Max Weinberg was the drummer. Who knew? And Roy Batan, everybody knew. 
It, he's, it, was always, oh. it was always labeled as a ripoff of Born to Run. And Born to Run, of course, was modeled after Phil Spector. The production on that album, Born to Run, was clearly Phil Spectorian, which was also Jim Steinman's wheelhouse. No, he had, he had the drummer and the pianist, the keyboardist, I should say, from the E Street Band. Lots of great sets of musicians. Todd Rundgren was in there producing uh, a great, great talent just all over the place. I've forgotten his name, the bassist who's been Rundgren's band. He has an album out this year. He's on the album. Ellen Foley was singing vocal. It's a great, great album. It's 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 really a lot of fun. I do not put it in the guilty pleasures category at all, but it's certainly one you'll love even more if you're 17. And are you and talking barely, about Kasim Sultan? Dressed. Yes, no, yes, yes, I am. Thank you very much yeah. for looking that up. What surprised me about his life very quickly is that he was really fated to be a big star. He formed his first band. They got three record contract offers almost immediately. Then he went into a touring production of Hair, and then he got signed to Motown and did a duets album with another singer in Hair, that touring production. They did an album for Motown and had a top 40 hit uh, on R&B charts right away. The album didn't pan out. The, the relationship didn't pan out. But, you know, this guy was fated to be a star, and then he auditioned at the Public Theater. He met Jim Steinman, and the rest is history. And one other person, I should say, uh, is the novelist and child welfare advocate, Andrew Vax. He died at the age of 79. You may not have heard of him unless you're really into tough, hard-boiled fiction, because he was a master of that. I spoke to him for the first time, or by email, I should say, because I was doing these complicated lists for Parade Magazine about the best mysteries and the best thrillers of all time. I reached out to him. He devoted his life to advocating for children and fighting the scourge of child sexual abuse and exploitation. He was a lawyer, and he he died in November. We didn't even know about it because his life was so private. There were so many crazies probably in his world. He never really talked about even what borough he lived in Manhattan. So he was always very private. Well, and I had Manhattan to reach is out. a borough. You mean New York What's City? What's borough in New York City? I beg your pardon. Yeah. So I had to reach out to him in this circuitous way to ask him to do it. And I got an email back from him saying, if you are the person who contacted me here and you are actually this, then I am willing perhaps to do that. And so we developed an email relationship, very, very modest, but he was very very nice, very good guy, very interesting, and did amazing stuff as a child advocate. Uh, he, he said, quote, if I had a wish, it would be that what I write about was fiction, because he always wrote about pedophilia, kitty porn, people exploiting children and incest and the like. Uh, he's responsible for national databases that list child molesters, convicted child molesters, so that if you're hiring someone, say for your daycare center in Oklahoma, you can find out that this person was convicted of child molestation in Minneapolis, which prior to him was not possible. So he did a lot of really important work. and. He devoted his career. Once his fiction writing took off, he ended up just doing all his lawyer work as a child advocate, which really doesn't pay well because kids can only pay you in like cereal. Yeah. Well, they you don't know really have any well. money. Yeah. So you know it doesn't pay well. Yeah. Being a podcaster. No, not at all. Yeah. Well, you know what? You, here's how you could pay us. You could let friends and family and colleagues know about our show. In fact, they should subscribe to our show, just as you should, in iTunes, Google, the Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free is usually where you can find us. And please, in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so, 
please do rate and review our show. It helps us out when you do that. That information can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you're, you'll find all the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call, leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle there. And we're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. Much like us, we have a website, ShowbizSandbox.com. They have a website. It's WhoIsMGMT.com. Michael Giltz. Every week, he's got a new and exciting website for us to check out his work on. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's Meatloaf.com, which is not Meatloaf's website, but it is available for a mere $250,000. Dude, you should have bought your domain name. And you know what? He said, it took me forever for rock and roll in the industry to take me seriously. To which I say, you named yourself after an entree. That that didn't help. (laughs) I'm going to name myself Fried Chicken. But uh, (laughs) in any case, uh, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Now, remember, we might have a special episode next week. I hope so. A a special Sundance episode. But if you want another full Showbiz Sandbox episode, you know what? It might be two weeks. So until two weeks from now, play nice. (laughs) 